0: Today's program was brought to you by craftbeer.com, dedicated to small and independent U.S. craft brewers. For more information, visit craftbeer.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Org.
2: You're listening to In the Drink on Heritage Org. In the Drink is the show that brings you the most interesting people and most delicious drinks in the world of beverage. And I'm really excited for today's show. We have in the studio, all the way from Austria, uh, Alex Rayner, who is the head distiller and uh, co-owner of the Rochelle Distillery in Austria. And they make some of the most highly regarded Brandies, fruit brandies in the entire world. Um, Alex actually took over the uh, distillery from his father-in-law, and now it's a family business. Uh, he makes the, the, his range of fruit distillates with uh, his wife and her sisters and maybe more of the family that I don't know about. And their selection process for choosing the ripest, finest fruit is, I think, pretty unparalleled. These are really unique, really beautiful uh, distillates and uh, I'm really excited to learn more about it welcome to, welcome to Bushwick, welcome to In The Drink, Alex, good to have you
3: Yeah, thank you very much for having me, great to see you, Joe
2: So I, I want to start off with asking you about why you decide to call um, your, your distillates fruit brandies uh, As opposed to eau de vie or, or schnapps um, uh, We were talking a little bit before the show about what maybe your impression of the American uh, word for, for schnapps is, is all about
3: uh, I think in general, uh, when we thought about an English expression for the product we are doing, we, uh, we found that it's actually a very small or non-existing market uh, in the US or even in England and uh, so there was no obvious term of how to call it and then when we were saying well let's call it schnapps what we call it originally in german um, we came across a, a different product which uh, originally was uh, you know sugared flavored color and everything we don't stand for and so we're saying well we we, we can't really call it schnapps at that point of time um, let's try to find something which uh, comes closer to the original so there is an German expression, which is called Brandwein. So it's like distilled or like burned wine mm-hmm. in a way. And so brandy comes closer to that word. So I like the word, let's call it brandy, but then brandy is something different again um, because it's, you know, it's like matured in oak and all this, and we have a clear spirit. And then we say, well, well, listen, actually, we make brandy out of fruit. Why don't we call it fruit brandy? And uh, and here we go. So it's a uh, Rochel fruit brandy.
2: And but that makes a lot of sense to me. But what do you call it in uh, in Austria? Do you refer to it as schnapps? On the in Austria,
3: it's called schnapps. Okay. Uh, still Really, the traditional term is schnapps. Although these days uh, they come up with um, more marketing-driven terms as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, it is it is a schnapps, and we call ourselves also a Tyrolean. Uh, distillery in German would be Schnapsbrennerei, So we also use that traditional term um, because a lot of our thinking the way we th- uh, think and the way we work goes back a long way. Uh, our roots are in the uh, traditional distilling um, of the uh, orchid farmers uh, in Tyrol and that goes back a couple of uh, uh, centuries ago and this is really where the, the Schnaps tradition was born and we want to call it that way. And,
2: you know, I was doing some research before this and trying to find a definition for schnapps. Is there something that defines schnapps other than a fruit-based distillate? I mean, the the kind of purity that, that you work with, you make a big effort to, to not use any additives whatsoever. Um, uh, th- w- can you have any clear definition of what a schnapps is?
3: Well... Yes and no, uh, there's a law, and when you read the law, then uh, you, it states very clearly what Schnaps stands for. Um, but um, for us, it's not, that was never uh, good enough. So we, uh, we were rather than trying to interpret the, the law, we were saying what, uh, what we understand, what a good Schnaps stands for. And again, here we were going back in history and time and trying really to, to dig out the old ideas of making a good schnapps or fruit brandy and uh, with all the ingredients it takes to uh, to make it a good distillate mm-hmm.
2: um i you know I, I work a lot with italian wine and i know the alto adige is called the sud tyrol is mm-hmm. it's like the nord tyrol is there the northern tyrol is that the area that you're that you're from that you're yes, right I, on the border um, of, of italy right that's I mean, that's, that's right like, it takes yeah.
3: me about 20 minutes by car mm-hmm. to go to italy and um, uh, and the Alto Adige, as you mentioned, uh, well, that goes back in history now, where it all was one Tyrol before the First World War, and after the war they all split it up in three different Tyrols: the East Tyrol, the North Tyrol, and the Southern Tyrol. And you were referring to Alto Adige, the the, the Southern part that became part of. Um, um, Italy,
2: Yeah. So I imagine it must have been a pretty prosperous area if you're able to use this amount of fruit, right? If you're saying the history of it was to have like a really high quality fruit distillate that was all natural um, to to use all of that fruit to to not to eat, but in order to make into an alcoholic product.
3: Yes, that's right. Well, It all started uh, not with a high quality product, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, it was giving the farmers the choice of using all the harvest. And obviously, you know, the best bits, you know, they were harvesting and trying to sell uh, for consumption other bits. Then, you know, they're making juice or compote or, you know, for some uh, kind of fruit like apricot, making jam and all this and then there were the leftovers, really, you know, the things that were not so pretty any longer and not so great. And uh, and back in the, uh, you know, 16th and 17th century, um, uh, they were, it was a good source of producing alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so they were using the the sugars that are still, uh, you know, uh, in the fruit and fermenting them and then distilling. And back then it was uh, of um, doubtful quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but as always, um, you find uh, these kinds of uh, producers and other kinds. And there were, there were people ba- even back then who were producing and were saying, well, um, if you take mediocre fruit... The best you can get is a mediocre schnapps. So if I want to sell it or give it to friends, you know, I maybe do the mediocre stuff. But if for the stuff I want to drink or want to share with my good friends, um, um, I gonna kind of, you know use the better fruit and some of them using the best fruit. And then I noticed, well, actually, the better the fruit, the better the outcome. And so uh, you really benefit from uh, from that kind of thinking. And this is where um, the tradition was born where we say uh, we have a Trurolean tradition of making schnapps. Mm -hmm. And that was not the 20th century, you know, where it all became quantity and uh, where it all became commercialized. And uh, that was rather the time where the quality went down um but it's really the old tradition of making good brandies yeah
2: yeah so we know that that the american idea of schnapps has really nothing to do with this whatsoever we have so many additives and sweeteners and low alcohol but um if you're going to make schnapps in austria are there some things that people that people are allowed to add that you just choose that you choose not to yeah it's really
3: uh... You can really do whatever you want. It's really loose, huh? Um, it's very, it's a very loose interpretation. Um, you just you it, then you have to make a certain wording that you put on the bottle, so on the on the label. But for most consumers, that's quite misleading. You know, uh, is it a spirit? Is it a distillate? You know, is it a, like a schnapps or we call it like a. Uh, uh, an Edelbrand, so it's like a very, very good form of schnapps. But like for the customer, it's very difficult. You know, is it made out of fruit? Is it made out of ethanol and flavors? Is it made of like parts of ethanol or parts? And then you can add sugar in the process before fermentation or after that. So it's there's. A, I read once in an, in, a, in a magazine that uh, today a modern, you know, a modern uh, in parenthesis uh, um, uh, distiller he should add as many things as possible to the mash because you don't want to be passive and looking at what the fermentation brings. You know, you should have to be proactive and add many things and all, but this is really about diluting the whole exercise mm-hmm. uh, rather than concentrating what really matters. And, uh, and I think this is what, uh, where we differentiate um, the most is the raw material that we are looking at.
2: Yeah, you, I think you almost take a winemakers, or even like a low interventionist or no interventionist winemakers view to uh, to making your product. In my mind, when I was reading about it, like just the the care of the selection of just the the best ripest fruit, um, the aging process of it, and mm-hmm. your your desire to like really showcase what that what that fruit uh, can give you. Um, let's talk about the the fruit selection process because you're not going doing the you know. Seconds or mediocre fruit, right? Uh, I see the pictures of the fruit that you use, and it's like the most pristine, perfect. It looks like it could be in a uh, a Japanese market in Tokyo, in like a gift box, and could be presented to a friend,
3: you know, mm-hmm. for an anniversary or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, you would never find that kind of fruit on the Japanese market. <laughs> because it grows in an orchid, it's harvested there, and most of the times it's even processed there. So it's, there's no room even for um, you know logistics to take the fruit somewhere else in order to sell it on the market or something.
2: No, but I just but, mean, but, um, I don't know if you've, I know, ever, if you've ever been yeah, to yeah. Tokyo where they, they like idolize a perfectly grown piece of fruit. Uh, and that, that same sort of idea, it seems like I know. what you're working with exactly, is yes, really yes. high quality stuff.
3: It is, uh, historically, with in our family and company, um, the comparison you do, you make with the winemakers is a very good comparison mm. because we're all um, very much wine lovers as well and wine collectors. And our examples uh, that we were always looking at were the small winemakers of Burgundy or the Piemont that were really trying to make something special out of their small, you know, uh, uh, wine uh, uh, wine garden and um, uh, and vineyard, but uh, vineyard, vine- vineyard, but vineyard. Sorry, but yeah. Wine garden is yeah. Great, yeah I got yeah. <laughs> <great>. <laughs> the vineyard and uh, and really concentrating on the fruit and keeping it all natural and uh, and uh, for us this is really a kind of thinking that we uh, we put into effect also with uh, with the schnapps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can you just
2: take us through quickly the production process for for those of us who don't know exactly how
3: it's made. Well, basically, it's, it's a very simple process. Um, but then with simplicity, the things become always more complicated as always. But in general, we just take fruit and, uh, and we turn it through uh, two or three different steps. We turn it into alcohol, which at the end is still 100% the fruit. So we don't add anything during the process or even at the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. living water. so We can talk about the water uh, business uh, uh, later on, and um, uh, and so this is uh, something. When you drink it, then this is something really that you have to keep in mind that this is a one hundred percent pure fruit distillate, and so when you have apricot uh, fruit brandy or schnapps. Then, when you drink it, all you drink is pure apricot. Mm-hmm. And this is something I think very beautiful um, because uh, the process of fermentation and distilling allows you to, to switch or turn the fruit into something completely different while still remaining 100% the fruit. And you're not even adding uh, yeast, are you? This no. This is the
2: real natural yeast from from the orchards. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. For yes, me, you're that's, homework. that's really important for uh, for for having the true flavor. I think
3: my, my favorite wines are all made with uh, ambient yeast as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, when we start at the beginning, it's um, because that's what you talk about is then the fermentation already. But the homework that we need to do is um, right in the orchard. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where it starts, and I would say. Of all our efforts, 80% go into um, finding the right fruit and where it's grown, finding the right partners, and then convincing him that he should harvest it the way we want it to. So, I'll give you an example Um, there are many kinds of apples. And, uh, and uh, over the period of 20 to 30 years, when my father-in-law was a pure hobby distiller, never thinking about uh, founding his own distillery, um, he tried so many things. And, and, and even today we still do. We always check, you know, are these the right, the right varieties. But at some point we discovered that the Grafenstein apple variety is just the nicest mix of flavors. Um, that can be transformed into a distillate because most of the apple uh, fruit brandies, they have hardly any apple Mm taste because the flavors are so fragile, they don't really go into the, the distillate. So finding the right variety, okay, so we have found the Grafenstein, but then we ask ourselves, so where is it grown? So many people think that um, it doesn't really matter where the apple is grown. Apple is apple. But then when we compare it again to the uh, vineyards, we know that you know, the nicest Pinot Noirs are grown in Burgundy. Yeah? Uh, in Piedmont is the Nebbiolo, you know, the Barolo wines. And, uh, and uh, oh, I know you go to Spain and uh, you find uh, particular areas for particular grapes. And what, what matters for grapes matters obviously for other kinds of fruits. And we found out that um, for the apple, for instance, it is the south, uh, southern areas of Styria, which is one area in Austria, have the perfect uh, microclimate conditions that we need for that apple. French would call it terrain, uh, which all brings together. So we found this. And then you need to find a partner that is actually willing to work with you. And when we tell them what we want... To be honest, 8 out of 10 just run away. Mm. Because they say like, this is like so old school and the effort you're asking for is just so high, even um, uh, even if you don't, you know, even if we can choose the price, what we usually do, we ask the farmer, how much do you want for, for your work? They just have a diff- very different thinking, which is they say what they would call it like we are too modern to be so old fashioned. And uh, but we want, for instance, for the Apple, we say, um, we would like to that you that you grow it as naturally as possible, and we want you to start harvesting only when the fruit is ripe. So they, all the farmers say, oh, obviously, you know, we harvest when it's ripe, but when you go, just go there, when they start the harvest, and I always am at, at the harvest, um, they start picking when the apples are green. And I was saying, no, no, this is not ripe. I mean, ripe that when you eat it, that has its full potential of flavors so when you really like it's it's so juicy and it's so flavorful you enjoy yeah. eating it one more day it would be too it would be overripe right. but today it's the perfect day almost. exactly okay. and that that is exactly it's a good point that you mentioned this because that means if you if you put that into real life um, that means that you cannot harvest the apples all in one or two goes no. yeah. you have to basically go through your orchid 10 to 15 times over a period of three to four weeks, and at some, day, time, some days you only uh, select—I don't know—500 kilograms, yeah. And and then there is more sun, and the the, the uh, ripening is better. Then you can collect maybe two tons on a day. Mm-hmm. But the, it is really the fruit that decides when it's going to be harvested, and not not the farmer because of logistics. Mm-hmm yeah you might think of this as
2: uh silly but it's it is a, uh, a a fun activity for uh, uh for some of us here to like go apple picking like that's like a nice thing let's go apple but anyone who's ever done that knows that when you go apple picking the one tree is not all uniformly ripe so in yeah it makes total sense that if someone is just going to go through pick it all at once mm-hmm. then you'll have some underripe underripe fruit yeah. okay yeah. fruit good fruit and perfect. Exactly. Yeah, what
3: leaves fruit. that when you when yeah. you do this you always always end up just having mediocre average quality right because the best fruits gonna mix with the amino you know, average and then the ones that are picked by the birds mm-hmm. or have fallen to mm-hmm. the ground and uh, and then you have to be very strict about it and so we, we harvest and then we select by hand once more and uh, and, and, uh, and only the fruits that we and still consider as being you know first class are then uh, processed. And because when we talk about ripeness, and it's really as ripe as the pictures you mentioned, it's not professional pictures. I just take them whenever I'm at the harvest. Um, most of the fruit cannot be transported any longer mm-hmm. because it's so ripe. Yeah? And, uh, and it should not also, it should not go into a warehouse or like, you know, or a big cooling facilities. It should be processed at once. So uh, most of the farmers um, we work with are small, you know, um, uh, family-owned orchids. And they just process um, the fruit at the day of harvest, at the point of harvest. So basically, he takes these apples, goes back to his farmhouse and produces the mash. He puts the, he grinds them into a fine apple mash and puts them into large vats. Mm -hmm. And then he closes the vats and that's it. And then the fermentation starts. We don't add anything, never. Not even, as you mentioned, yeast. It's the natural yeast on the skin of the fruit. So the apple in the Western Styria has the apple uh, yeast of this particular region. And this only is the one way forward. Mm -hmm. So the good thing is, once the fermentation has started, um, it is preserved. So whereas the the individual apple would risk of, you know, turning, you know, being overripe and uh, and uh, becoming having negative effects after harvest. Uh, once the fermentation process has started, it's all safe and then we can ship them back to our distillery. And then you can distill it. And, and then we it. need to ferment it and then distill it. And, and so, I mean,
2: uh, going back to that comparison with uh, winemaker, every great winemaker I know says that the majority of the work is in the vineyard, and then in the in the winery, you're just trying to not mess up all the all how special the vineyard is and how great the fruit is. And it sounds so similar to, to mm-hmm. that same that same idea. Uh, but on that note, we have to take just a quick break, and we'll be back with more of Alex Rayner of Rochelle Distillery, most incredible fruit brandies, uh, right after the short break.
0: diversity of styles and flavors? The stories of small brewery businesses and the communities behind today's craft beer movement? If so, you'll love craftbeer.com, published by the Brewers Association. Whether you tasted your first craft beer 30 years ago or just caught the bug last week, craftbeer.com is the number one destination for beer education, news, and recipes. Looking for a local brewery? Use the internet's most robust brewery finder to discover your new favorite place. Want to get geeky about your favorite beer style or find the perfect pairing for dinner? Craftbeer.com is the leading authority and can help. Celebrate the best of American beer. Visit craftbeer.com today.
1: Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter.
0: I'm rich in heart, but poor at pros. teach you to rhyme, but nobody grows.
2: And we're uh we're back on In the Drink here with Alex Rayner. But before we get started, uh I actually just wanna read a little something to you guys. Uh so we have uh really exciting members only happy hour coming up and uh um Are you guys a Heritage Radio Network member yet? Uh, Well, membership not only supports the production and broadcast of the show, but also comes with some perks. All current members are invited to our new monthly happy hour series, Books and Brews. Join us on April 12th at Three's Outpost at Franklin and Kent in Greenpoint with host of Eat Your Words, Kathy Irway, and her new book, The Food of Taiwan. Uh, Meet other members, snag a copy of The Food of Taiwan, and enjoy some... Beer from HRN business member Threes. I love Threes and go all the time. Uh, Donate at org slash donate to get your exclusive invite today. Uh, Hope to see you there. Um, All right. I'm back with Alex Rayner of Rochelle uh, Distillery in uh, the Tyrolean area of Austria. And, um, he makes incredible, highly regarded fruit brandies. And he was telling us about the fruit selection process before, uh, before the break. But, um, you did hint on the history of the business. And I would like to, to talk about that a little bit as well. Um, it was your father-in-law who started, uh, who started distilling and you said he started as a, a hobbyist, uh, distiller. Um, can you tell us about, uh, how it went from someone who's doing this as a hobby to now a highly regarded professional company that you know that supports your
3: family. Yeah, yeah. It goes back uh, to the early 1970s, so around um, 45 years now. And uh, Günther, uh, Günther Rochel. So that was uh, this, the surname gives uh, gives the uh, the brand its its, its name. Um, he was originally a young chef and um uh, he was cooking in all different kinds of restaurants but that was uh, his uh, school of thought and um and as a, also like a, a really traditional tulolian he loved uh, the, you know the the tradition of making good schnapps um the problem in the 70s was there was no good schnapps around it was far too commercialized uh, using flavors sugars and all the mistakes you know people do uh, when uh, when it becomes a growing, a mass market product. And, um, and as a chef, he was just basically saying, well, listen, if there's no good schnapps around, I'm going to start distilling. And uh, he and his brother Dietmar went up the rolling in forests and collected little rowan berries. It's little red berries, very, very traditional uh, schnapps in roll. And they collected these berries and started distilling. And, uh, and they liked the outcome. And uh, the two of them uh, continued distilling. And they went to their uh, family orchids and collecting apples. And from apple it got into pears and pears to apricots. And I think over the course of the next 20 years, more than 100 different varieties were distilled. And he became really passionate about it. And, um, And his thinking as a chef was obviously, you know, if you cook something... Um, what matters. It's not the pan that you're using. It's not the oven you're using. It is the ingredient. It is the raw material. So his thinking of a chef was also then his secret to success later on to making a good uh, distillate because he was still focusing, as ever, uh, on the the raw source, in this case the fruit. And uh, he was a quality fanatic. Sometimes it was difficult working with him, but um, but the outcome was always good because he was so uh, stressed and so super keen on getting it right. And he understood what mattered in distilling. As I've already mentioned uh, several times, it is the fruit that, that, that matters. So learning a lot about this mm-hmm. um, gave him the expertise that in 1989, when he decided um, at the age of 49... Well, I, now I'm going to establish my own distillery. Um, uh, but it's always nice to you know, open a business with already 20 years experience in producing a product. That is very rare. And then something happened. He, he, he came out with a product of uh, very high quality and, um, and, uh, and surprised many people that um, such a high quality schnapps product can actually be made. Because people back then, they were drinking cognac, or nice whiskey or uh, all all other kind of fancy drinks, but not like Austrian schnapps. And he basically taught them, well, listen, if you can make a nice drink out of barley, why shouldn't you be able to do this of wild, you know, uh, forest, wild raspberries or, you know, ripe pears? So there was no real justification in order not to. So he started building his business slowly and we ne- and he never and we still never wanted to be big. Mm-hmm. We want to be successful in and differentiate ourselves through quality and never quantity. And this is a decision you have to make at some point when you are successful and uh, and we always and we came to that uh, particular point where we decided if we go for quantity then we need to compromise. Because we're not a software company where you can duplicate your product, you know, endlessly, and um, and we saw that um, when we say, for instance, uh, we like the apricots from two different varieties, and we only like them from the Wachau area in uh, in Austria uh, on the on the river banks of the Danube, and uh, and this quantity there is limited. Um, we cannot buy somewhere else. And this is a principle. We have our core partners that we are convinced. If we find new ones and are able to expand, but only in adding in quality, but never compromising, then we do. But for instance, if this apricot, we just had the blossom there last week, and it's always a very early blossom. And there's always the risk of frost.
2: Yeah, I mean, reading through your website and seeing the question, you know, it, it, it reminds me of reading through a, a website of uh, of a great winemaker. Again, like the the risk of frost and how how mm-hmm. in tune you are even with the with the flower, the blossoming uh, stage. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what two things. What what has changed since those the since nineteen eighty nine, since the early days in in the company. And and two, did you think that you were going to be so involved and you'd make this your life and career when you
3: when you met his uh, his daughter i would have hoped so even back then but you never you never know where life takes you and back then i was a student and we were living in london and had completely different plans but i uh, but i always admired his attitude towards um, good quality and good quality products and at a certain point, um, uh, when, we dis- when we started the thinking of whether we should stay in London or go back to Austria, then obviously, you know, the distillery as a family business came up, you know, what's, who is going to look after this? And, uh, and we decided we're going to do it for a year. Because I said, if something goes wrong, you know, and you know, I like you as a father-in-law and you like me, but, you know, if we work together as professionals, maybe that's different. So we said one year and nobody is angry with each other if it doesn't work out. And it was it ended up in seven years of a very close, uh, very father-like cooperation, and uh, we worked together very, very well. um, Unfortunately, he passed away in two thousand nine. Too early for us as a family. But luckily, uh, during that six to seven years, I followed in his footsteps. I was able to pick up the essentials and also the fine print of distilling. And again there was more working in the orchids than uh, in the distillery actually mm-hmm. incredible mm-hmm. incredible
2: and uh, you've brought a few uh, you brought a few for us to taste here I'm actually mm-hmm. I've been sipping on that the apple and it's amazing because I'm I'm tasting it as you're uh, as you're speaking and sometimes I forget that it's apple because it's so complex there's so many layers of flavor and then the apple keeps coming back I it's like oh yeah, this is apple and even after I've uh, taking the sip and if it's been a minute since I've taken the sip and then I'll have another rush of apple come through my mouth. It's an incredibly complex mm-hmm. spirit.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, and I imagine part of that comes from the, the aging process. It's a, it's a combination of what you notice, a combination of many things. It's first of all the fruit. We discussed it in detail. Uh, and then it's like just leave it as natural as possible. So fermentation is all natural without any additives. So we turn the uh, natural fruit sugar into alcohol. So the production of the alcohol is done always in the fermentation process. We never add any alcohol or anything else. So once the fermentation is finished and we distill what you noticed when you drank it, um, it's strong. It is strong. It is quite strong in alcohol and strong and very long, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. in the flavors. So one minute, two minutes, sometimes if you're, if you're very carefully, then you can taste the, uh, the, the finish is very long. And, and this is because it's strong. It's strong, but not harsh. Yes, and that is where maturation comes in. Mm. So the distilling, you have basically to do everything right. Avoid all the mistakes, so you get the right middle cut. Mm. In German we call it Herzstück, so the heart piece. Uh, get all the flavors uh, into the heart piece, um, into the middle cut that you want to have there, and cut out all the um, side effects of the alcohol, so the, the methanol and the other high and low spirits you don't want to have there. But And, and we make a lot of effort to get this right. Obviously, we don't want to have a distillery where we say like, oh, we had the greatest mash on earth, but then we didn't pay enough attention in the distilling process, so we end up with a middle cut, which is like only 80% of the flavors of the fruit. You know, great, then how should I convince my farmers next year round that they make uh, an extra effort, you know, if they don't get it right? But really what matters at the end of the pro- pro- production process is the maturation. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, in the States, you are familiar with maturation because all the brandies and cognacs and uh, all like oak-aged uh, uh, distillates are aged for a very long period. But this is mostly because you want to have aging, but also you want to have um, flavors, additional flavors coming out of the barrel. Well, we don't, we don't do that. We only age in um, glass balloons, so that's why we actually should use the term rested so that we don't confuse it um, with, with barrels. So it's a clear spirit. And it's very important. Why? The alcohol, um, and it's a, it's a nat- natural thing, and the alcohol carries the flavors. Mm-hmm. And we put a lot of effort in putting the flavors from the fruit into the alcohol. So you have all the delicate, fruity flavors already there. And in the maturation process, it is about preserving and enhancing these flavors. And you don't want oak to overpower those flavors, no. right? And also, it's not to roll in tradition mm. to, uh, to work with oak. So, uh, we focus on clear and very fruity spirits. So, it is strong. And we have, we call it 50%, which is, I think, 100 proof mm-hmm. minimum. And, and this is not because we distill differently. This is because we age. And we age a minimum of five years and up to 10, 12, 13 years. And during this process, the alcohol lessens. We have a huge angel share. So the, 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 the stuff that just evaporates, the alcohol. And also over time, which is very important, the, uh, the alcohol and the uh, fruit flavors that combine and balance the harmonious unity. And this is why you can drink it stronger at a higher level of alcohol and that brings in stronger flavors because you don't dilute the the finished product so much. Normal um, schnapps in Austria with 42% probably has 60% of water. But also, like, we have a very hard time when we have yeah. finished with the distilling, so we have a great fruit brandy there, and then we add 60% of water. No, that can't be the end of the story. You so know? have you added any water to this whatsoever? Um, we uh, well, It really depends. Um, we have a range. Where we don't add water. We have some vintage, where we don't have to add water. But I would say, in general, we add... Uh, Depending on uh, the strength of the alcohol that we produce and the aging so the, ma- the amount of aging um, around five to fifteen percent a tiny amount and, yeah. the, and you can i mean this is it 's eleven forty
2: in the morning that we 're taping this it 's uh, my first drink of the day and it 's a fifty percent alcohol spirit and i 'm not like it, it doesn 't feel harsh or strong at all in my in my throat it 's like a beautiful experience that uh, you know i can imagine drinking this at this time of day is not uh jarring to me in the least but it's lovely and i i would not have thought that if you were to say you're going
3: to taste a 50 percent alcohol you yeah. know brandy yeah you're going to try another one now it's this yeah. muscat grape we were talking about the winemaker so this is uh, uh, a good example so this is um the, uh, the the vintage 2004 so it's more than 10 years 12 years uh Wow. Being aged, it is strong and fruity, and um, but it's not. It does. It should not harm you, and that is that is why we age it. Yeah, um, in the old in the old days of making schnapps, um, the um, the distiller was not able to filter it. So, because usually what what happens in these days is you add so much water, it becomes cloudy and misty, and then you use sophisticated filtration methods in order to get it clear again. But the old, but the old farmers who were distilling, you know, two hundred years ago, there was no filtration. So he actually was forced to let it at an, uh, leave it at a higher um, alcohol amount because adding too much water would make it, you know, cloudy. So it was too harsh to drink it young. He put it on the side and say like let's leave it for one or two years or oh, after two years it's better let's leave it longer and longer and uh, only adding very little water. So also th- also this is not a Rochelt invention, mm-hmm. it is really going back to the old roots where the farmers just didn't have a choice and um, uh, unless than just leaving it at the highest ranks and drinking it's sip by sip also when I watch you now drinking you just you just cover a little bit your lips and that's oh, yeah. really it. So this is also why um, why I recommend to drink it in very small portions and really enjoying it rather than like sipping it down all at once because it's it's a lot of alcohol. You don't need it. When you have something that's so
2: complex and high quality, you don't need a lot of it to be satisfied.
3: And that's true for this product but it's true for everything. <laughs> I say it's like I rather enjoy in one nice bottle of wine Rather than three or four of, you know, average, you know, it's, yeah.
2: uh, This is beautiful. So floral and it, it smells like the blossoms of a muscat grape as, a, as opposed yeah.
3: to, I mean, so yeah. bright and fresh still yeah. as something that's, that's yeah. this aged. They come uh, from family Schopf. They are called yeah. Schopf in Burgenland. So this is close to the Hungarian border, uh, which is uh, very well known for their, uh, their uh, the, white, the white and red wines in Austria. Hmm. And this is Muscat. Yeah. Muscat Ottonel, it's called the grape. Let's taste one more, and I have a, a question for you um,
2: as well. I mean, you said that the American market is uh, maybe not so familiar with schnapps. I, I can't imagine you're selling like a ton of these here in the States. You're with a great distributor, Nicola Palazzi, who's actually on the show a, a few weeks ago. Um, He's someone who has extraordinary passion for, for high-quality spirits and really knows the people and the story behind everything he does. And so it's not surprising to me that you're with someone of, of, that, you know, of that caliber. Um, but where, where are you selling these? Is this mostly in Austria? How are they being uh,
3: you know, received here in the States? We are a very small company, to be honest. Uh, we are like six people working there. And we have an annual output of maybe five thousand to maximum nine thousand liters, so mm-hmm. maybe like ten to fifteen thousand bottles so talking about uh, global reach or like the world famous this is all overstated because you know ninety nine percent of the people don 't know us and uh, but that 's not the point we really want to we want to really reach out to the people that um, would like to enjoy. A very high quality product and appreciate it, and uh, wherever they are. So uh, it's a funny story with Nikola, actually. It was a a restaurant in New York City who actually contacted me, and, and Gabriel Kreuter. Um, wrote me an email once and saying, "Well, listen, you know, I was in Salzburg uh, cooking with uh, Chef Eckhart Witzigmann, and he gave me a bottle of your schnapps, and I liked it so much, and I'm a schnapps enthusiastic. Uh, I would like to uh, to offer it in my restaurant. And I was like saying, oh, I can't do this. It's, you know, I'm too small. You know, with all these customs regulations and all this. You know, I don't have a law department. You know, it's it's just not uh, not right. But." Um, but maybe you can suggest a, a you know distributor from New York um, who can handle all this uh, for me. And then Nicola, uh, he called me. He came over last September, and uh, and I was saying, well, I gonna I gonna repay um, uh, the uh, the visit and come to New York uh, to see him as well. And uh, and so this is how it started. Here, it's really about uh, uh, restaurant chefs, sommeliers, private customers that that. Would like to have a bottle or two that they are able when they contact us or through Nicola and basically say, "Well, you can buy it here, but it's not about um, covering, you know, the market of the US or something." Mm-hmm. We would not be able to do this. And this our is your capacity. first trip to
2: New York for representing the. yeah yeah yeah. it's uh,
3: it's only it's only uh, i think nicola's first order was uh, last october so it's really it's very small and i I told him already that uh, even if it goes all very well we're still limited i only can give him you know certain varieties Um, we have a portfolio of altogether 20 Mm -hmm. i think around 10 or so uh, are available in general uh, um, but we are now focusing on four or five where i have um, some spare capacity in order to respond to, uh, to
2: orders. What is the one that you produce the most of and what is the most highly sought after
3: that's always hard to, to find? It really, it really uh, changes a lot. I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. In small years... Depends on instance, the vintage. Uh, ah. The apricot, <laughs> yeah. we, uh, we have from zero frost um, to maybe 10 tons. And uh, in a good year, the same area can produce 100 tons of apricots. So, uh, or the ho- the overall output of our of our distilleries, we can harvest uh, in bad years because of diversity um, of roots between 80 and 90 tons, mm-hmm. and in very good years around 200 to 250 tons. So it depends. Sometimes we produce more and sometimes we produce just very little. But I would say something like, uh, the once you taste it, one of my personal favorites is the apple. Muscat, and now you're trying the um, Morello cherry. So the wow, sour I cherry. Love this. and it's outstanding. Uh, it also is from uh, Styria. And also here again is three different varieties of cherries. And they're all picked by hand, so you don't sh- you call it shake it from the tree. Shake the tree. Yeah, yeah, we don't do that because for similar reasons than with the apple, we only want to have the ones that are perfect at that mm. particular day of harvest. So, um, so we pick them all individually. Um, uh, from the tree sorted and then processes on and on and on but this is something really particular about it because like the individual hand uh, handpicking for a product like schnapps nobody does it right it's mm-hmm. truly uh it's truly incredible I really it's vintage it. 2005 so also you have it is strong and balanced at the same time yes I, w- I would say wow
2: uh i think we've actually gone over a little bit on the show but uh this has been such a pleasure to have you on, uh, good luck on your trip to New York. Um, I hope that the small production that you, that you make, you're able to, you know, sell well with, with Nikola here, um, for anyone who is interested in high quality, low interventionist, handmade artisanal wine, these are, these are that of, uh, of, uh, brandies. Um, they're just extraordinarily complex and delicious. And uh, congratulations. This is awesome. Thank you.
3: Thanks so much. And thanks for having me.
2: And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, I I want to thank David Tattashore and the whole team from Heritage Radio Network for producing the show. And uh, this has been In the Drink on Heritage Radio Network. We'll see you next week.